0: Good morning. I'm, I'm really still not used to that. That's a, uh, that's a powerful moment. Um, let, let people pray for you. Let people lay their hands on you in the name of Jesus Christ and pray for you. I sure need it. This morning, uh, got up to a leaky van. I, you know, I, My, my uh, sermon this morning is about praise and praising God. I chose Psalm 145. I saw it in the lectionary and thought, fabulous. I love Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is awesome. And as I started to get into it, I thought, and how am I going to preach about this? I mean, it's, it's right in your face. It's pretty cut and dry. And I woke up to, uh, late to a leaky van, and my umbrella wouldn't open. As I ran through the rain, I thought, okay, you're going to talk about praising God. Let's see if you can praise God in the rain here with a leaky van. So I tried. I, I mumbled some praises to God as I got to Ambler this morning. I got invited uh, three weeks ago just out of the blue A phone call, unknown number. It was a friend of mine from before seminary, a physician who invited me to play in a golf tournament out on Daniel Island. High cotton out there. Nice, beautiful place if you haven't been there. Try to get invited. Uh, So I I said, yeah, sure. So I, I showed up there Friday and what you do, and those of you that play golf, I, I used to play a lot, I don't play much anymore, but those of you who play, before you get in a tournament, what you like to do is warm up a little bit. Probably any sport, you want to kind of stretch the muscles, and so there's a driving range or a practice tee that you can go to, and it's, it's beautiful there, and all of these gentlemen and ladies were lined up practicing, and so I waited my turn, and finally, a young guy, probably in his late 20s, early 30s, picked all of this stuff up and turned to me with a little bead of sweat on his forehead, and he said, it's all yours, and I hope my bad karma doesn't affect your game. And I got this big, you guys can see it. I got this big silly smile on my face and I said, "That's okay. I don't believe in karma." And he literally stopped and looked at me in his his kind of confused look and I could tell all he wanted to do was get away from me. I mean, the last thing he didn't want to hear anything about why I didn't believe in karma or anything and I just smiled at him and he he took off and so I prayed, "Okay, Lord, whatever that guy's talking about, let that be cleared out." And the truth is, I don't believe in karma. Uh, There may have been a time in my life where I believed it or maybe even relied on it, or I had a worldview, kind of a mixed-up worldview that included karma. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, what I mean is karma is essentially the belief that the good that we do will eventually come back to us, that we'll be rewarded someday for the good that we do. Likewise, this is always the dark place, The bad that we do, the bad that we do comes back to visit us too. So sometimes in frustration, your van might be leaking and you say, Lord, what did I do to deserve this? And I know he's just sitting up there laughing and going, nothing, nothing, you've just got an old van. (laughs) Yeah, just an old van, you should get it fixed. Um, We see that in the scriptures too. I mean, there's a place where Jesus Uh, is confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there's this man born blind. Remember that story? They say, what did this man's parents do? Or what sins has he committed to be born blind? Um, Jesus doesn't refute the entire meaning of that. I mean, there is something to say about generational sin being passed down. But Jesus says in this instance, no, this man was born blind so that God could be glorified, so that God could be glorified. It's, It's as if Jesus is saying, what goes around doesn't come around, or, or we really can't pay it forward. We really can't pay it forward. Because that's articulating a belief in some system that rewards or punishes based on what we do. Based on what we do. So with that in mind, with the idea that Gary doesn't believe in karma, and hopefully the rest of us will at least consider that this morning, I want to look at Psalm 145. Now, I have to warn you, my seminary zeal, I'll try to keep it under control because there's so much I want to tell you about Psalm 145. I know, everybody's shaking their heads. Please keep it short. Oh, okay. Well, there's a couple things I want to point out about the psalm, and then I want to show you what I believe is Jesus in the psalm, and then I do want to land this. I do want to end. So Psalm 145 is a descriptive psalm of praise. Now, there are two types of praise songs. There's the descriptive type and the declarative type. The declarative type is usually the psalm that sounds something like, Lord, help us, Lord, save us, Lord, rescue us. The enemy is pushing in on all sides. So it's the psalmist crying out to God because he's bigger than the situation. Lord, you can fix this. The descriptive psalm, on the other hand, is human words, human words trying to explain the unchangeable nature and quality of this amazing God. Now, because I got such... Positive feedback, the last time I put a Hebrew word up on the overhead, I'm going to put another Hebrew word up on the overhead this morning. That Hebrew word is barach, and you do the thing in the back of your throat on the end, so I'll let you guys say it with me, barach. Yeah, very good, very good. And it means essentially to bless, to bless, barach, to bless. The cool thing about today's psalm, or the first cool thing, is that that word barach appears three times in the psalm. It appears in the first and second verses, it appears in the tenth verse, and it appears in the twenty-first verse. You see, this psalm is, is an acrostic. It was designed by its poet to do several things, not just impute knowledge in its words. It's also written in a way that would have made the people of that time go, oh, wow, take notice of this. So I want to show you, looking at those, three, those four verses, actually, verse 1, 2, verse 10, and verse 22, why this is important. So, Kerry, can you pull those up? Okay, every day I will bless, there's Barach, you, and praise your name forever and ever. Then verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. And then finally, the conclusion, the last verse. So beginning, middle, and the end, last verse, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name. So what the poet wants the people then to know and us to know is praise starts with an individual I will bless you. It moves to the corporate. All your saints will bless you. And concludes with everything blessing the Lord. One day every knee shall bow. It's a concentric. See how the circles are getting wider and wider and wider there? Fascinating thing about this. Um, It points to one of my three points about our praise to God. And that is, according to the psalmist... Well, let me, let me back up, because I want to tell one more feature, and then I'll get to that. The second feature I want you to know about this psalm, and we can't show it, is that the psalm is written as an alphabetical device. It starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph, and ends with the last letter, which is Tav. So if you can picture the English alphabet, A, B, C, D, the psalmist has written a poem here, or a, or a psalm, that starts with A, and then the next verse starts with B, and the next verse starts with C, and the next verse starts with D. And it goes all the way through the alphabet. All 21 verses cover all 21 letters. He, he did that for a reason. It points to this, this, these three points that I want to make. According to this psalmist, all of the praises of God would fill all of the volumes in the world, all of the composition of all the letters that can be made in England, any language. In any language, if you took every letter and every word of every language and put them all together, the psalmist is saying, you still wouldn't have enough words to praise the Lord. It also points to memorizing. It points to the value of memorizing Scripture. They gave, the psalmists gave this as a tool to the people of the time and to us as an easy way to memorize. You just remember A, B, C, and you go through this psalm verse. And thirdly, it points to our duty. I, I, I like that word. I know sometimes it can be misused, um, but it's our duty and a point of spiritual wisdom, Once one commentary wrote, to set aside all the particulars of our own lives and go about the work of praising God as this psalm teaches. So in the midst of a leaky van and walking in the rain, praise God. So psalms are important for three reasons. We should never cease to give God praise. We should understand that there are not enough words to contain the praise that is due God. And we should be comfortable with the fact that the word of God should be buried in our hearts for comfort and encouragement. One commentator I read said this, and I really like it. I I might print it up and hand it out for everybody at St. Paul's, starting with me. Some duties of the church belong to some persons. We all know Joy Cabasta's in charge of the kitchen. We all know that Father John's almost always there at eight. Some duties of the church belong to some persons. Other duties of the church belong to other persons. Carrie Hall's in that office very early every morning. But, capital letters, The duty of praising the Lord is the duty of every man and woman in the church. Amen? Amen. The duty of praising the Lord is the duty of every man and woman in the church. You see, when we praise God, something happens to us and the people around us. It puts us in an inferior position, and we need that. Hear me, brothers and sisters, we need at times to be put in an inferior position. We need something outside of ourselves, greater than ourselves, to praise. We praise other things wrongly, but God is asking, God is demanding, God is calling for our praise. Praise is designed for God and for God alone. And here's my final thought about the psalm before I close. I want you to notice in these 10 verses that Carrie's going to put up how they reflect, I believe, a shadow of Jesus. So in verse eight, and I think that's verse eight and verse nine, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Think about the prostitute about to be stoned in the New Testament. Think of Jesus bending down and writing in the sand. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. Look at the next verse. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Think of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Next verse. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all those who are bowed down. It's the third quality of God. Think of Zacchaeus. The eyes of all look to you and give you, and you give them their food at the proper time. Verse, verse, verse 15. Fourth attribute of God, feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, we heard it this morning. You give them their food. Look at 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The fifth attribute of God. Think of the remote healings of the centurion servant and the Canaanite woman who came begging for her sick daughter. You open your hand and satisfy. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made, his sixth attribute. Think of Mary, think of Martha, think of Lazarus, and think lastly of Jesus' mother there at the cross. The Lord is loving toward all he has made. 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Think of that irritating blind beggar at the pool of Siloam calling out to Jesus for healing. Verse 19, he fills the desires of those who fear him He hears their cry and saves them. This was my favorite. Think of the garrison demoniac. Jesus lands on that shore. It just sets that guy to tormenting himself. Think of the man possessed of the demon in the temple when he shouts out, Who are you, son of David? Verse 20. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. His tenth attribute according to the psalmist. Think of his disciples in the boat, scared during the storm. The Lord watches over all who love him. Think of them and think of us. So I believe this psalm, like other places in the Old Testament, allows us to get a glimpse of the shadow of the incarnate God, Jesus. So I think after me reading the psalm out loud to you and giving you my, uh, my sense of how the Lord wants us to understand it this morning, we're left with a question. I called a friend of mine this week. I do that a lot when I'm preparing for sermons and I don't know what I'm gonna do. I said, um, so, I mean, where, where's the good news in this psalm? I mean, where's the evangelistic punch at the end? I mean, where's the, where's the hook? And he said, why are you preaching on the psalms? <laughs> and I said, well, it's, I love this psalm. I mean, I love how it describes God's nature and God's character. It's a beautiful psalm. And he said back on the phone, well, isn't that good news? I said, yeah, yeah, that's good news. But what, what if somebody here, what if somebody in this hundred and something gathered doesn't believe it? What if you've, you've heard the psalm read by our lector, you've just heard Gary go through the psalm, and you don't believe it? Well, then you're left with a choice. I mean, you really are left with a choice. Will, will you or will we continue to go on in this life thinking that somehow we're in charge, that somehow we do control our own destinies, that somehow the good we do comes back to us and the bad we do, also comes back to us. But the promise, of course, of Scripture is that there's no such thing as that. It's just this broken and fallen world that we live in that seeks daily to interrupt and confuse us, leaky vans and things. Um, The world is Scripture, and specifically the Stom states, is created by, sustained by, and will be redeemed by a loving and all-powerful God that we were once alienated from. But because of his grace and love that existed before time, he alone chose to reconcile us to himself by the only means possible, Jesus. He sent his son to declare his love for us and to set in motion the final phase of his reclamation project. So with that, as my worldview and hopefully yours, I tend to see things in only one way. God, as we heard last week in Romans, predestined our lives and our future He's always had our best interests in mind, as he demonstrated most powerfully by dying on the cross. He lives in all who believe and call him Lord, and he alone is the force responsible for the final redemption of this place that is now groaning, remember from last week, groaning in anticipation of his return, groaning under the weight of the fallen nature of this place. So sadly, no matter how much I try to do good, and trying to do good is not a bad thing, I need to remember it will not affect the outcome of my life for eternity apart from Christ. I could have good fortune here on earth, but my eternity depends on God's grace and my acceptance of it, not on a system of checks and balances, which ultimately leaves me in charge. God is in charge, the psalmist tells us. He is the one. It is God and God alone who is due our praise. His plan, as we heard last week, is always for good. Good. Hear that. God's plan for us, his church, and the world is always for good. So whether we understand it fully or not, God is in charge, and we should be praising God for that. Amen.